Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the uh, beautiful day outside. Thank you for a place we can gather together to, to worship you, to fellowship together. And also, Lord, to hear from you. And Lord, I do pray for that. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and our minds and speak to us and help us to see and hear what you want us to see and hear, Lord God. I pray you'd help us with any distractions, any burdens, any worries, any sleepiness, any tiredness, any anxiety. That, Lord, may we just be able to hear you, Lord God, in this time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a, a famous old Greek quote. Perhaps you've heard of it. Know thyself. How many of you have heard that phrase? Know thyself, right? I think it's been used very often throughout history uh, in many different contexts. Usually when so, that, that quote is used, know thyself, they're trying to stress maybe the importance of self-awareness, to be aware of oneself, right? Know who you are. So it's been used in many different contexts in that way. In different contexts, it's used to imply be more concerned about yourself than what others think of you, right? So if you know yourself, that's more important than what others may think of you or how others may see you. So there's many different ways in that, that quote is used, know thyself. And, you know, I would say that today, you know, a lot of people would value that quote, know thyself. They would see that as, yeah, you know what, if you know yourself, that is the key to happiness. That's the key to living a fulfilled life. If you know yourself, you can find happiness or fulfillment. And I would say that much of today, today's culture and society would embrace that. They would think absolutely, right? Because today's society and culture, I think self is king, isn't it? The idea of thinking of me is king. We, that's the most important thing. Finding our awareness, our happiness. So we become kind of the center of our preoccupation, of our thinking, of our values. And if you think about it, right, I think it's very natural for us. We're constantly seeking to better ourselves, aren't we, right? In many different areas, we want to constantly be, you know, better ourselves. We want to be a healthier version of ourselves. So we're very preoccupied about, you know, bettering ourselves or knowing ourselves more and more. And I don't think that's a bad thing, right? That's a good thing to be self-aware, to want to better ourselves and, and be a healthier us. I don't think that's a bad thing. But I think oftentimes we can get preoccupied with self, right? We get kind of obsessed about self, so where we become very kind of self-centered a bit. And so it, it gets to the point that everything we see in life, we get so preoccupied that we interpret what happens in our life really through the lens of self. What do I think of this, right? What's my attitude? How does this affect my feelings? How do I feel about this situation? And so everything that happens in our life goes through the lens of self. 
how this hurts my feelings or how this affects me, affects my well-being. And so we interpret a lot of things in life based on how we view, based on ourselves. So that can be a little bit problematic. And it can be problematic when we take that, that perspective and we look at it through our relationship with God. If we try to understand God based on our lens, right, how this affects how I feel about God or what I think about God, we start to think of things like, well, what are my thoughts about God? What are my feelings about God? How does, it, how does God affect my interests? Or what is my truth about God? Right, that's a big deal today. What is your truth if God is how you think it is or how you think God is? That seems to be the value today. So it can be a bit problematic. And a lot of Christians take that perspective into even Sunday, right? Even in the sermons, right? And someone's message, not myself, but anyone else. You go into a sermon and say, God, this is what I want to hear. This is what I need to hear today. So sometimes we approach sermons like, man, I'm feeling kind of burdened today, or I'm feeling kind of lost, or I feel like, you know, I have some decisions to make, or I, I you know, there's a lot of chaos going on in my life. And you go into a message and say, God, I want you to speak into my life. I want you to do something to help me feel better. And that may not be anything wrong with that, and certainly God does do that. But sometimes we get so preoccupied with self that that becomes our expectation. We want to know ourselves better. We want to help ourselves a bit more. We want to feel better about ourselves. And like I said, there may not be anything wrong with that, but sometimes we get preoccupied with that. We value that, knowing ourselves more than something that's even more valuable, and that is to know God. To know God is more valuable. It should be a desire, greater desire for us than it is to know ourselves better, to be more self-interested. So do we value learning more about God? Do we desire to learn more about Jesus? Do you go into a Sunday saying, you know what, God, I want to hear more about you. I want to understand you more. Why do I bring this up? We're going to take a look at that today. Because if you remember last week, I, I talked about the most important question you can answer, right? In all of life, you think of all the questions you've had in life, the most important question for you to answer is, who do I say Jesus is? That is the most important question for you to answer. It is literally a matter of life and death. What do I think of Jesus? Who is he? And you're not going to get to that answer until you really desire to learn about God. Learn, why do I believe Jesus is who he says he is? So we're going to take a look, a bit, look at that today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 9. If you don't have your Bibles, there's a Bible in front of you. You can use one of the pew Bibles. It's up on the screen as well. So I want you to, as we're reading this passage, to challenge you, challenge ourselves to not become less, or to become less self-centered and more centered on God. I'm going to put my interests aside from God, I want to know more of you. So Mark chapter 9. 
pick it up in verse 1. It says, And he was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white. And no launderer on earth can whiten them. As no launderer, excuse me, on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of a cloud. This, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's a poor version of God's voice. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restores all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did not, uh, sorry, that they did not know him whether they wished, sorry, just as it is written of him. So let's refresh our memories for this moment, going back from the previous messages and previous weeks. If you remember, Jesus emphasized to his disciples that despite all they had witnessed, all that they had seen, all that Jesus had done and taught, they still did not yet clearly understand. They were not seeing as they ought to see. They weren't hearing to understand. Jesus had told them that he was going to face suffering by the hands of the elders and the scribes and the chief priests, that he would die but resurrect. Jesus tried to prepare them, right? He's trying to prepare them for what was going to happen. But they didn't yet understand. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And we saw last week how Peter had just proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. He confessed, you are the Christ. You are the one. And when Jesus told them what was going to happen to him, that he was going to be betrayed, he was going to be suffering, he was going to suffer many things, Peter was like, that's crazy talk, right? He said, God forbid that Jesus to happen. And of course, we saw how Jesus rebuked Peter, right? Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're thinking, And so we saw from the start of Jesus' ministry, people flocked to Jesus because they were in need. They needed a miracle. They needed healing. They needed to be freed from demons and all things. They were seeking out Jesus because they were in need. And then Jesus said something very startling. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, to follow me, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. 
We mentioned last week how that's a big contrast. Here's a turning point in Jesus' journey. Because up until this point, people were coming to Jesus because they were in need. But now Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, now you must deny yourself. You must be willing to face the shame that may come from following me. Big turning point. Jesus draws the line. Yeah, it's nice for you to come to me when you're in need, but now if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. So we see a shift in Jesus' journey here. He's laid the foundation for faith in him. But understand, Jesus is not wanting them to believe in Jesus the rabbi. He's not wanting them to believe in Jesus the miracle worker. Jesus, the good teacher. Jesus, the man of the people. That's not the Jesus he wants them to believe in. He's laying down the foundation for them to believe that Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who will suffer but resurrect from the dead. That's the Jesus he's laying the foundation for them to believe. So verse 1, we see up until that point, Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now this verse, I'll be honest with you, it's one of those difficult verses to understand because I think there could be different interpretations to this verse. What does Jesus mean by this? So there's different possibilities. And I could comfortably say, I don't know with absolute certainty which, where, where I fall on interpreting this verse. Here are some possibilities of how to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus could be referring to the transfiguration, what we just read and what we're going to look at today. That, that some of them will see a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom of God. One other interpretation could be that Jesus is referring to his return and establishing the physical kingdom of God on earth. So he's referring to the literal kingdom of God when he established his kingdom, right? So the only possibility of this being the case would be if it's referring to possibly maybe John who saw a revelation, right, and and saw a vision of the kingdom of God. That's a possibility. Another possibility is Jesus is referring to his resurrection, that through his resurrection, through the power of the resurrection comes the kingdom of God. Right? That's a possibility. And the other possibility, I think, is Jesus referring to the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the establishing of the church, that the kingdom of God is established through the church and the giving of the power of the Holy Spirit. So of those four possibilities, and there's some other possibilities, of those four, I kind of lean on the first and the fourth one. That it's referring to either the, what we're going to look at today in the transfiguration where some of the disciples see a glimpse of the kingdom of God, the, the glimpse of the glory of God. Or it could be referring to the giving of the Holy Spirit and establishing the kingdom of God through power. I think it's one of those two. You know, if, if we differ on it, none of us are going to, you know, our salvation doesn't hinge upon this. But I think it's a, one of those two. Okay, so that's what Jesus is referring to. Going to verse 2. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, known as the inner three, right? So among the 12, Jesus had three other disciples that had a little bit more access, if you will. I don't know whether it's a trusted or whatever it was about those three, but Jesus signaled out those three and took them up high on the mountain. And Jesus, at that time then, is transformed. This word for transfigured, this word, is where we get the word metamorphosis, to change into another form, to transform or to transfigure. Now, this word is used in two contexts throughout the New Testament, in two contexts. First context is here in the transfiguration, describing what happened with Jesus. Any of you know the second context? You can think of? Way, way back, one of the first messages I, I talked and shared today, we covered this passage. We looked at Romans, what? Chapter 12, right? Chapter 12, verse 2. We see this word used. Paul uses in Romans 12, 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Describing that when you come to Christ, your mind is transformed. Okay? Another instance he uses this phrase in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. But we all with unveiled face behold and in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So again, Paul using this word to describe that we are being transformed in Christ day by day. Now you may look in the mirror and say, I don't see any transformation. All I see is maybe some hairs growing or wrinkles forming, some white hair. Maybe that's the transformation of God. Maybe that's what's happening to me, right? I'm coming, seeing the glory of God through my hair. It's coming whiter and whiter, you know? I don't know what it is, right? But no, what's Paul saying? When you come to Christ, you undergo a transformation. And then we will realize it in fullness when we're with the Lord. I don't have it up here, but 1 John 3, 2. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know then that when he appears, and we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. If you want to think about something for the rest of the week, think about that. We don't, I can't tell you what we're going to look like when we're in heaven, in eternity. I don't know what age we're going to look like, what our body is going to look like necessarily. But he says, we don't necessarily know what's, what's ahead. But we know that we will be like him. We'll be able to see him face to face, his glory. What an amazing picture that is. What an amazing hope that is. So we see this transformation or this transfiguration, what, Jesus, what happens with Jesus And it says, and his garments became radiant, exceedingly white, that no washer, no washing machine, no laundromat can whiten it as it was. Notice this threefold emphasis by Mark. Jesus' garments became radiant, exceedingly white, whiter than any washer or cleaner can make it. Can you imagine that? The brightest of white, And it's that much brighter 
Have you ever seen somebody who have like really bright teeth? Like such white teeth, you're like, oh, that's white. That's certainly bright. Or if you've gone into a matinee in a movie theater, and particularly maybe you saw a movie that had a very dark scenery, and you go aside and you open the theater door and just that light is so blinding, it's hard to like, oh, let me fix my eyes. Or you get a brand new white shirt and you walk out in the sun and it's just like brighter than any other white. What happened with Jesus is, think about that, but many, many times over, how bright and white his garments became. Now, this alone would be an amazing situation, right? But it doesn't stop there. What else happens? Then Elijah and Moses appear, and they're talking with Jesus. Now, we don't know how the disciples knew it was Moses and Jesus in the moment, right? I don't think they were wearing name tags. I don't think it has some kind of sign or some voice, but they probably picked up. Maybe Jesus said, hey, Moses, hey, Elijah. (laughs) Good to meet you here. But understandably, they were terrified. At least two of the disciples had no idea what to say. They were at a loss for words, all except for God bless Peter. Peter felt like he had to say something. Have you ever been in that situation? You're like in a situation, you don't know what to do, and you just feel compelled. You had to say something. And then the words that come out of your mouth, you're like, why did I say that? I, didn't even, I don't even know what that means or why I said it. Peter, in response to what's happening, he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, three tents for you and Moses and Elijah. Peter must felt compelled to say or do something. They were probably left out in the conversation, right? In modern terms, I kind of think of Peter saying, whoa, Jesus, it is so awesome we're here. Can, can we build a tent for you and Moses and Elijah? I, I, I don't know what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were thinking, I, 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 this, is, this is not like, you know, biblical or anything like that, but I can picture Jesus looking at Moses and Elijah like, yeah, that's Peter. <laughs> that's him. Why did, we, why did Peter say that? What did he mean by that? I don't think we need to pay much mind to why. Because even, even Mark himself says, you know, Peter did not understand. He didn't even know why he said it. But what happens afterwards? It gets even crazier. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus. So can you imagine this, the disciples? Jesus takes him up in the mountain, and then he's transfigured, he's transformed, his garments as white, he's gleaming white, you probably can't even look at it. And then they look, and what happens? Elijah and Moses appears, and they're talking with Jesus. And then a cloud comes down, and then they hear a voice. And what does this voice say? I love this. You know why I love this part? Remember the previous chapter 
when Jesus had to remind the disciples and tell them, hey, do you not yet see and understand? Have you not been listening? Do you not get it yet? Remember he had to remind the disciples in the boat, do you not yet understand? I imagine, and again, this is my, in my imagination, I wonder if Jesus in the quietness in that boat as they're driving by, after, sailing by, and he told that to the disciples, do you not yet understand? I wonder if Jesus just quietly said, Father, they still don't get it. They still don't, they're still not listening. And I imagine the Father telling Jesus, I know, I know, just wait. Send them up to the mountain with you. I'll speak to them. I'll tell them. And so Peter, James, and John, they're, they're able to go up in the mountain again. All right, that's near. You're not going to find that in the gospel account, that conversation, right? I'm imagining it, right? But why I love this is because Jesus had just spoken to them about not listening, not hearing. And what does God, what does the Father say? What does his voice say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Understand him. This is my beloved son. This should remind us of what's seen. Go back to the first chapter of Mark. Jesus' baptism, right? When Jesus was baptized, what happened? A voice came down and said, This is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. The father's voice confirming who Jesus is. So suddenly this happens and they look around and they only see Jesus and Jesus instructs them, don't tell anyone what they saw until after he rises from the dead. Again, Jesus controlling the narrative. He says, you three, don't tell anyone what you saw, what you heard until I rise again. So afterwards, they travel back down to verse 11 to 13. Jesus addresses their question about Elijah. Why must Elijah come first? This, this idea of Elijah coming first, a prophetic role to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. Bring people's hearts back to God. And who played this role of Elijah? John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist came to prepare the people's hearts for the coming of the Messiah. So Jesus explains that. So you may look into these things and you say, why is this significant? What's going on here? Is Jesus just finding new ways to freak out the disciples? You know, if I had the power and ability, I would probably be that way. I would probably do that just for fun man, I'm getting so tired of these disciples. Let me, let me just like kind of mess with them a little bit. That's not why this happened. What we're going to see is that God is intentional. He's intentional with what he does. Even in our lives can intend for a bigger purpose. Now the passage that we read, for non-Jewish readers, the significance might be a little lost. Right? For us, if we don't have a Jewish background, if we don't have a, a background in the Old Testament, some of these things would kind of, the significance would kind of get lost. I don't know what the big deal this is, right? What is the significance of this? But for the Jewish mind, the Jewish reader, 
or someone who's familiar with the Old Testament, immediately they'll see some of the significance of what's taking place. So what are the features and the imagery that we see in this passage? One of the things we look at, where did this take place? It took place on a mountain. All right, this is where it took place. And the second feature that we'll look at, the brightness or a light. In Old Testament, a symbol of God's glory, right? This brightness or this light. Another common feature, the cloud. We saw a cloud descend down, represented God's presence. And then we see the voice, God's voice or his word being spoken to the people. So if you know the Old Testament scriptures, these will be familiar features, familiar things that you've seen in previous passages that represented God's presence with his people. But what's another interesting feature? We see Moses and Elijah up on the mountain. Now, what's the significance of this? Let's take a look at some of the passages dealing with Moses and Elijah. If you remember in Exodus chapter 19, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of bondage. And he sends Moses up to the mountain. And it says, So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Later on, chapter 24, verse 16. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the Son of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus 33, 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Wow. That's crazy. Exodus 33, 18. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. What boldness Moses says, Lord, show me thy glory. And then later on, verse 20, but he said, the Lord said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and ye shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. He's catching the imagery that Moses experienced with the Lord. Exodus 34, 5 through 7. And the Lord descended on the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, 
the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. You want to know who God is. God is showing himself who he is. He says, I am the one who is compassionate. I am the one who's gracious. I am slow to anger. Can you imagine if God had the same temper and the same amount of patience as we do? Can you imagine if God showed the amount of patience to us as we do to others or we even do to God? We wouldn't be here today. But God says, I am compassionate. I am gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Later on in Deuteronomy 34.10, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. So there was no one like Moses before him. And we see how Moses met with the Lord in the mountain. The cloud descended. The voice of the Lord came down. What about Elijah? Elijah at this point in time, he proved the Lord was mightier than Baal, right? And all the prophets of Baal, they had a big old barbecue up on Mount Carmel. If you don't know the passage, go look at it, 1 Kings. I think it's 19. But after that mighty scene, Elijah fled for his life because Jezebel, the queen of the evil King Ahab, wanted him killed. All her prophets of Baal was, was dead. So she wanted Elijah killed. So Elijah ran for his life. And he was in hiding. It was at the point where he said to God, Lord, I can't go any further. Can I just die? Then go on. I'm alone. I'm alone in this suffering. I'm like this lone voice. So God nourishes Elijah and sends him, and he goes up to Mount Moriah, or I'm sorry, Mount Horeb. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And before the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rock before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in the mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek to take my life to take it away. So Elijah goes and he meets the Lord. His presence is fully guarded, but the Lord passed by Elijah. 
What happened to Elijah, we know in 2 Kings 2.11. It came about as they were going along and taking that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two, meaning Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. Now, what a way to go. Didn't say he died, but God took him up in a fiery chariot, a chariot and horses and took him up. So you look at these two individuals, Moses and Elijah, and how do we compare the significance? Why Moses and why Elijah? Both met with the Lord on the mountain, Sinai and Horeb. And if you want to know, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb is the same mountain. Another name, same mountain. Moses met with the Lord, and Elijah met with the Lord. Both spoke to the Lord and heard the voice of the Lord. The Lord passed by both Moses and Elijah. The Lord was in the cloud and spoke with Moses as face to face. The Lord was not in the wind and earthquake or fire with, as with Elijah, but Elijah heard his voice. The Lord gave the law to Moses. Elijah faced suffering as Jezebel wanted him killed. You know what's awesome about this? God is intentional and brings meaning in the experiences we have in our life. That what we experience in our life can be part of a greater, larger picture of God's purposes. Moses and Elijah probably did not conceive of why this was happening. Their encounter with God was happening the way it did. Fast forward to Jesus, his transfiguration. What do we see in this passage? We see the cloud, the bright light, the meeting of the, on the mountain. You think, where is the presence of God? Jesus. Jesus represents the presence of God with Moses and Elijah. You think, well, what is the purpose of the voice, right? God's the Father's voice speaking. What's the purpose of that? It wasn't to represent God's presence necessarily because Jesus is there. What did, the, what did the voice address? Who was the voice speaking to? Who was the Father speaking to? The disciples. The three witnesses who are seeing this. He says, just so you know, listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The Father confirming with them of what is taking place. What you're seeing is actually happening. Listen to him. It's an amazing picture. Moses met with the Lord on the mountain. Elijah met with the Lord on the same mountain. And here on a different mountain, the Lord meets with Moses and Elijah. Again, why is this happening? The Lord Jesus is establishing faith in the resurrected Messiah, the eternal Son of God. Peter, James, and John, let this be a testimony for who I am and remember this for when I resurrect from the dead. If you remember, Elijah, he was sought to be killed. Jesus is wanted. They want to kill Jesus, right? Jesus fulfilling this role of both of Moses and Elijah I imagine Moses and Elijah is realizing, this is why I experienced what I experienced. 
Moses was not only a prophet for the Lord, but he delivered his people out of bondage. And Luke tells us that Jesus spoke, laid laid it out of what he was going to do, talked about it with Moses and Elijah. Yeah, Moses, I'm fulfilling that role in which you did. You are a spokesperson for me. You are a deliverer for me, a, a representation of my deliverance of the people. I am going to fulfill that in the large, large, bigger scope. Elijah, you suffered. You were the lone voice, the lone righteous voice in Israel. I know. I'm fulfilling that role. It's an amazing picture. And it's an amazing point of where we're going to see Jesus now revealing himself, but saying, you know what, not to everybody, not yet. Let's wrap it up with this. What are we to kind of gain? What do we see from this passage. One, we see Jesus' divine identity. Jesus revealing more clearly who he is. He is not just a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's just not a man of the people. He's the divine, eternal son of God. And he wants to make that known. He's revealing more and more clearly. He's revealing what his mission is for the disciples so that they would understand. Jesus fulfills God's plan. He's showing that he's fulfilling God's plan, his mission, even far back from the Old Testament. Of what we saw Moses, the role of Moses, the role of Elijah, and all of the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all those things. All that scripture was a foreshadowing of what was going to take place. It's kind of an amazing picture. It's amazing to look back and see how God's intentional and it's purposeful, even in the experiences that we have. I can't go on without a little bit of personal connection, right? Here's the two little secondary things that we can see from this passage. The first thing, or the third thing really, Death is not the final stage of our life. Think about this. Moses and Elijah, Moses who died, Elijah was taken up to heaven. They appear with with Jesus on the mountain. Kind of gives us hope, right? Makes us understand that our life does not end here on earth. That we have something that beyond that, that's a hope that we need to hold on to. It changes our perspective of how we see life. Lastly, we can anticipate enjoying a glory, a mysterious glory. We can anticipate enjoying a mysterious glory that we don't fully understand. I mentioned it last week how sometimes we live feeling like, what, what are we willing to sacrifice for our faith in Christ if we got everything we wanted on earth, everything we hoped for? Would it be worth sacrificing or exchanging it for our eternity, our soul, our faith in Christ? Are you as a parent willing to sacrifice your, the faith in your child for whatever pursuits that they may have? Or for yourself, you're an adult. You've been working so hard all your life 
to attain or to get to some level here on earth that you've put aside your faith in Christ. You've put aside believing in him. You're saying, I can get to that later. Jesus showing, look, here's a glimpse, just a glimpse of the glory of God. A small glimpse. Is it worth leaving that for whatever you can gain in life? Going back to the passage, we'll end with this. When you use that word transformation, Jesus showed there will be a transformation that takes place. We have an eternal hope that this body will not be the same. Can we say amen to that? Hallelujah to that. Praise God to that. That we will have a glorious Transformation. What a hope. So all of you with aches and pains right now, for all of you who are lamenting the wrinkles and the gray hair and whatever, you know, shape you want to be in, know that you have a glorious hope and future. But in the meantime, as Paul says, For those who are in Christ, you are being transformed day by day. That as we live on this earth, it is to be transformed day by day. Our mind is being transformed day by day. So that in this life, while we're here, we're being more like Christ. And then in eternity, we can see the Lord face to face our bodies will be transformed. Our spirit will be transformed. What a glorious, glorious hope. If you want to know yourself better, if you want to find a healthier you, know God more. Know God more. Seek to understand God more because the more you understand the Lord, the more you desire to understand him, he will speak truth to not only who he is so you see him clearly, you understand clearly, you can relate to him clearly, but also you will understand yourself more clearly. You will have a better understanding, Lord, how should I live my life? Instead of listening to the lies, listen to the Lord. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we just thank you that you are glorious. You go beyond, your glory goes beyond our understanding, our comprehension. We would not be able to stand before you. We would need to be transformed. But Lord, we thank you We thank you, Lord, for that great hope that one day we will see you face to face. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.